Well, before we get to today's message, just a word of excitement about the new teaching series we're going to begin next Sunday. It's a series we're calling Reset. Now, I know we're all enjoying the summer season, change of pace, nice weather, all that sort of thing, and we're glad there's another month still to go. But we know September's coming. And with it, a new year of work, school, church, ministry, and the whole deal. So this series, Reset, is designed to help us learn how to find rest and renewal, even when our calendars are full and life is crazy. I'm especially excited because we're going to kick the series off with a guest speaker. Dr. Matthew Sleeth is a, is a physician, an ER doctor, who's also a committed Christ follower. And a couple of years ago, he wrote a very powerful book called 24-6. And in this book, he makes a compelling case for recapturing the biblical concept of Sabbath and rest. Uh, Dr. Sleeth has been named as one of the most influential voices in the church today. And uh, he's actually going to be here to kick off that series. Now, many of our staff know him and have heard him speak. He's a great communicator. So you'll want to be here next week as we begin that series. And then the staff and I will unpack it over the course of the month of August. So it should be a great day. But today, I'm happy to be wrapping up our first summer series, Never Too Small, in which we're looking at children and young people in the Bible and looking to them as role models for Christian life and faith. Now, our speakers have had some fun along the way sharing photographs and stories from our childhood, so I thought I'd share one uh, that I think I have shared here once or twice before. Um, I'll give you a glimpse into my childhood. Okay? That's my, my brother, Keith, and, and me. Um, you can guess which one became the mild-mannered preacher and which one became the wise-cracking cop. All right? <laughs> So that picture was taken on a Sunday morning. Obviously, we are dressed in our finest and headed out to Sunday school and church, which we did every single Sunday for our lives uh, growing up as kids. And I've already shared with you many times how grateful I am for that upbringing, what a rich foundation it provided for my life and faith. Now, my brother Keith would say the same thing, I'm sure, but Keith has always been a bit more of a realist than I am. And he's got a gripe with Sunday school. He said, in Sunday school, the stories always have a happy ending. The sick are always healed, the hungry are always fed, the storms are always stilled, and the good guys win. But we know that life doesn't always work that way. In Sunday school, we're told that God is always with us, that Jesus watches over us and answers our prayers and protects us from harm. And then there comes a day when God seems far away, when something bad happens to us or to someone that we love. Our prayers aren't answered the way we expected them to be. And the first time that happens, it can really rock your faith, especially if it happens to you as a child or a teenager. A serious illness in the family, a financial crisis. a traumatic move to another part of the country, a divorce, a loss, a church split. When those things happen to you as a kid or a young person, they can alter the, the trajectory of your life, the trajectory of your faith. Some people never quite recover spiritually from those experiences. So my brother has always dared me to preach a sermon series entitled, Myths I Learned in Sunday School. <laughs> now, I'm not quite prepared to do that, but 
Today, I'd like to conclude our series with a dose of realism, with a story that doesn't have a happy ending, at least not right away. Now, in our messages so far, we have looked at some young people who have inspired us by their faith and courage. Miriam, who rescued her little brother and helped lead the people out of Egypt. Naaman's servant girl, who dared to speak truth to power in a hostile environment. Timothy, who was nurtured by a faith family and, and then went on to become a church leader. And then Samuel, who heard and answered the call of God at a critical time in Israel's history. Well, today we're going to meet a young girl whose only claim to fame is that she was sick. Very sick. We're going to meet her parents and her father in particular, who came to Jesus for help only to be disappointed. We're going to learn from them how faith works in the face of disappointment and even death. And along the way, I'll share a faith-shaping childhood story of my own. Let's begin in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 43. Mark, chapter 5. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, this event takes place early in Jesus' ministry. He has quite quickly become a popular figure, a great teacher and a, and a miracle worker by reputation. And so we're told that a great crowd of people, Mark says, have gathered around him. They've come out to hear Jesus teach and to watch him do something remarkable. One of the people in the crowd is this man, Jairus. Now, he's not there out of simple curiosity. He's there with a very pressing and particular need. His daughter, a girl of about 12 years old, we learn later on, is very, very sick. In fact, she's dying. Now, we're told that Jairus was a, a, a ruler in the synagogue. So this means that, that he, was, he was kind of in charge of a local house of worship, the facilities and the services. He wasn't a professional clergyman. He wasn't a priest. He was more like an elder or a deacon in our context. And so we have to assume that this was a religious family. Every, every week they put on their finest clothes and went off to Sabbath school or whatever it was they called it in those days. Like many of the kids here in our congregation this morning, this little girl was raised in the faith. She'd heard all the stories of how God came to the rescue of his people and performed miracles and answered people's prayers. So it's not hard to imagine the conversation that might have unfolded in that household as the girl got sicker and sicker and sicker and as the normal remedies didn't seem to be helping. Every parent knows how anxious and helpless you feel when your child is sick or in trouble and, and you don't know what to do anymore and nothing seems to be helping. So it's not hard to imagine at some moment Jairus' wife saying, Jairus, why don't you go see the miracle worker, Jesus? Maybe he can help. Now that wasn't as simple as it sounded. Remember, the religious establishment has taken a position against Jesus. 
He is a false teacher at best and a blasphemer at worst. So for Jairus, this would mean going against his own colleagues and risking his reputation and his standing in the community. Please, Daddy, the little girl might have said, go get Jesus. You see, she's old enough to know how very sick she is, but she still has that childlike faith to believe that God can help her. Kids, have you ever asked God for help with something very, very important to you? Maybe a big test at school or a bully who just won't leave you alone or for money problems in your family or for your parents to stop fighting or for someone you love to accept Jesus. This is what we do when when we don't know what else to do, we pray. And that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what this family does. Please, Jairus, please, Daddy, go get Jesus. And so at a certain moment, that's what Jairus does. And when he finds Jesus, he doesn't quietly and discreetly ask for help. No, he throws himself at Jesus' feet, the Bible says, and publicly pleads for Jesus to come help and heal his daughter. I'm not sure if he had remarkable faith, or if he was just incredibly desperate. And chances are it was a little bit of both. And again, this is what the Bible tells us to do when we're in difficult and even desperate circumstances. In the New Testament, the book of James puts it this way. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. So however young or old we might be, we have no trouble identifying with the characters in this story because we've all come to Jesus at some moment in our lives asking for his help, believing that perhaps he can do something. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what this man did. And for the moment, it seemed like it was working. Verse 24 tells us, so Jesus went with him. What a relief that must have been for Jairus. The teacher would never have agreed to come with me if he didn't intend to do anything. My, my daughter's going to be okay. She's going to be healed. The text goes on to say, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Remember, Jairus is a leader in this community. Everybody would have known him. They would have known the family and the little girl. They were probably walking with them through this whole experience. If you've ever been part of a church family or a life group where a child is desperately ill, you know how everybody goes through it together. And so this whole crowd goes along. They're eager to see the girl made well, and they're eager for Jesus to perform a miracle. But something happened on the way to Jairus' house. Jesus was interrupted. Verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, the scripture goes on to describe how in that crowded scene, the woman snuck up behind Jesus, touched the hem of his garment, and was immediately healed. Now, this was, this was a wonderful thing, but for some reason, Jesus decided at that moment to stop the whole parade. 
to call the woman out of the crowd and engage her in an extended conversation. Now, this had to be very hard for Jairus. Now, I'm sure he's happy for the woman. Chances are he knew of the woman and her affliction. But, but he was in a hurry. His little girl was sick. They had to get there. This is no time for a counseling session, Jesus. He must have been thinking to himself. And back home, the mother and daughter are just waiting, wondering when or if Jesus is ever going to come. I imagine the mother going to the window of their house and looking down the street, waiting for, for her husband and for, for Jairus to come home, and Jesus to come home. I can imagine the little girl calling from her bedside, Mommy, why are they taking so long? Aren't they here yet? And haven't we all asked that sometimes? Haven't we all wondered why God is taking so long to answer our prayers? For, for healing, for, for, for a job, uh, to meet someone special, for a child, for someone to come to faith or come back to faith. It's especially hard when other people's prayers are being answered and ours are not. I mean, we're happy for them, but why isn't it working for us? As hard as it was for Jairus to have to wait, it's about to get much worse. Just as Jesus is finishing up with the woman, two messengers arrive from Jairus' house, and their faces are sad. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? How awful to speak and hear those words. Your daughter is dead. It doesn't get any worse than that in this life, does it? The unthinkable had happened. Just like that, it's over. It's so final. The unthinkable had happened, even though they had prayed. So this is an awful moment for Jairus, for the, the faith community he's a part of, certainly for that mom who now is sitting by her daughter's bedside sobbing and wondering why Jesus never came. Now, most of us know the story's not over yet. But they didn't know that. Most Sunday school lessons would quickly rush for this happy ending. But if we do that, we miss something very important here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us this story, and they all tell it in the very same way, with Jesus being interrupted on his way to help the little girl. That's because they want us to feel it. They want us to feel in our gut the anxiety, the, the fear, the disappointment, the grief over what's happened. Because this is a real moment. This is a human moment. And it's a pivotal moment. For, from their perspective, it was too late. Too late now for God to do anything. While the girl was still sick, then maybe Jesus could have done something. But now that she was dead, well, it was too late. Jesus had not come through. Their prayers had not been answered. And this is how life works sometimes. 
This is reality. Things don't always turn out the way we want. Prayers aren't always answered the way we expect them to be answered. People aren't always healed when we pray for them. Jesus doesn't always do exactly what we ask of him. Not because he doesn't care, not because he's not able, but because we live in a free and fallen world where bad things happen sometimes, even to good people, even when we pray. It's a lesson every kid who grows up in Sunday school has to learn sooner or later, and I had to learn it as well. As I said, I grew up in the church and heard all these wonderful stories from the time I was a little kid about Jesus coming to the rescue and answering prayers and keeping us safe. And up until I was 12 years old, I had no reason to doubt any of those stories. My family and I enjoyed a happy, healthy, suburban, middle-class life, including a large extended family on my mother's side, aunts and uncles and cousins, all of us living in in the New York metro area. Many times a year we got together for family reunions and holidays and wonderful times together. Whenever we did get together, the life of the party at those family reunions was my grandfather, my mother's father, who we affectionately called Pop-Pop. He was a happy, healthy, fun-loving man who took great delight in his four children and their spouses and his 14 grandchildren. Here's a picture of my brother and me and Pop-Pop. This is at uh, Cooperstown at the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I'm doing my best Mickey Mantle illustration right there, okay? Now, Pop-Pop had come to faith later in life, not too many years before this picture was taken, actually. Well, one summer day when I was about 12 years old, we were in vacation Bible school, and, and my mother got a, an urgent fo- phone call from her childhood home in Brooklyn. Uh, Her father, our grandfather, had gone missing. He was a semi-retired x-ray technician who sometimes took special assignments from local hospitals around the city. The day before, he had gone out on a call, and he had never come home that night. Now it was morning, and there was still no sign of him. Police were scouring the city, but no one had heard anything. We immediately piled into the car. I remember rushing out of Vacation Bible School in the middle of the morning. We piled into the car and made the hour drive into Brooklyn. We didn't talk much, but we prayed. Prayed that Pop-Up would be safe and would come home soon. When we arrived, pretty much the whole family now had gathered at that row house in Flatbush. And we all waited. I was one of the oldest grandchildren... And sensing that this was a, a difficult time, I did my best to kind of entertain the younger kids and to keep them all happy. But all the while, I was watching the adults, trying to read their faces, overhear their whispers. I remember in particular watching my grandmother, Nana, again and again and again, go to the window, pull back the curtain, and look down the street, hoping to see her husband driving towards the house. Well, finally, as evening fell, the doorbell rang, and two rumpled-looking detectives with sad faces appeared in the doorway. All the adults rushed to find out, and, and I remember watching my Nana's knees buckle as she collapsed onto the couch in tears. My grandfather had been killed in a carjacking. 
It was the worst possible news. The unthinkable had happened, even though we had prayed. That's not how stories end in Sunday school, usually. That's not usually how they end in a Sunday sermon. But that's how they end in real life sometimes. That's how they end in a fallen world where people are free to do foolish and sometimes awful things. Where people can walk into a movie theater or a church or a military installation or a shopping mall or a hospital parking lot and start shooting people. It's the kind of world we live in. How do we handle that? What does faith look like in the face of of these kinds of things when it seems as though God has not come through? What does Jesus have to say to us in the face of deep disappointment and even death? Let's see what he says to Jairus in this awful moment. Verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. The more literal translation is, keep on believing. It's an extended present tense. Keep on believing. In other words, Jairus, stay with me. Jairus, it was faith that brought you to me in the first place. Don't give up on me now. Stay with me. This is a pivotal moment for Jairus. It would have been so easy for him in disappointment and doubt and anger to just walk away, to give up on faith in Jesus and the whole thing. But turns out he stays with Jesus. And they continue on to the house. Verse 38. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Why not? A a terrible thing has happened. News has spread. Friends and family, professional mourners, they've all come to the house already. Verse 39, he went in and Jesus went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Now, what did he mean by that? Is Jesus speaking euphemistically? Is he trying to make it sound less awful? Or is he trying to redefine death for all of them and for us? To the mourners and the family who were gathered, it was a foolish thing to say, if not an irresponsible thing to say to a grieving family. This this isn't Sunday school, Jesus. This is real. Of course she's dead. There's no sense pretending otherwise. The text says they laughed at him. Well, at this point, as I imagine it, Jesus got mad. The scripture tells us he put them all out of the house. Did they really believe that that death was the end? Did they really believe that his father's power didn't extend beyond the grave? After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. That would have been Peter, James, and John. And he went in where the child was. You see, Jesus is not interested in putting on a show for the crowd. But he does want to honor the faith of those who have come to him. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, 
I say to you, get up. Can you hear the tenderness in Jesus' voice? Can you feel his firm but gentle grip on that little girl's hand? Can you see hope rising in the tear-filled eyes of this mom and dad, believing that something yet could be done? Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. I guess so. (laughs) He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, why these two strange commands? Give her something to eat and don't let anyone know. Well, the first was was to demonstrate that she really was alive not just a ghost. Give the kid a juice box already. (laughs) Give her something to eat. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke tells us exactly what was happening here. He says, and her spirit returned. See, in other words, her, her, her spirit, which had been separated from her body at death, which is what happens at death, her spirit had been reunited now with her body. Which, by the way, is exactly what's going to happen to everyone who dies in Christ when we get to the other side, body and spirit reunited. So this little girl whose life and faith had been tragically interrupted is now alive and well and back in the arms of her loving family. So why the big secret? Why not tell people? Because Jesus isn't ready yet for word to get out that he can raise the dead. This is too early for that. And so very slyly, Jesus plants in people's ideas an alternate explanation for what's happened. Maybe she was just sleeping, the crowd is likely to conclude. No one can raise the dead. Jesus is not only powerful, he's very, very smart. So this is a wonderful story and a happy ending. But it brings us right back to the Sunday school problem. It doesn't always work this way in real life. The people we love aren't always healed. The prayers we pray aren't always answered the way we expected them to. So what does this story offer us in the face of disappointment? Well, as I see it, the story teaches us that it's never too late for God to come through. It's never too late to invite Jesus into the scene. It's never too late for God to take a mess and do something good with it. It's never too late for God to come through. Even though this this particular miracle of, of resurrection isn't often replicated in this life, it serves as a sign, a pointer, to what will happen someday for every believer who dies in Christ. Someday. Every believer who dies will will hear the voice of Jesus on the other side saying, get up, arise. Someday, every believer whose physical body gives way to disease and death will one day receive a new body fit and glorified, fit for eternity. Someday, every believer who is separated from loved ones by death will be restored and reunited with their loved ones and God in worlds beyond imagining. That's why the Bible says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. 
And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Of course, we grieve when someone dies. Death is an awful thing that robs us of life and loved ones. We should grieve. We need to grieve. But we do not grieve like those who have no hope. Because for believers, death at its worst is only an interruption. For this little girl and her family, that interruption lasted only a few hours. Now, for most of us, that separation will will last much, much longer than that. But you know what I think? I think that when we get to the other side, it will be for us like it was for that little girl. It will be like waking up from a little nap and finding that we are safe and well and in the presence of Jesus and our loved ones for all of eternity. When my mother tells the story of that terrible day, one of her most vivid and comforting memories is of her younger sister kneeling beside the couch where my nana was weeping, throwing her arms around her mother and saying, it's going to be okay, Mom. Daddy is safe. He's alive and well with Jesus. We will see him again, and we will always love him. I don't think my grandmother could probably comprehend or even receive that truth in that particular moment. But ultimately, it was that truth that would see her and the rest of us through the difficult days of grief and transition to come. That event rocked our family's lives and our faith. We all had to come to terms with what happened, with how God works in the world, and by God's grace, we all did. My grandmother came to discover a personal, vibrant faith in Christ, which she really had not had before. She eventually remarried and lived happily until the age of 95. All four of Pop-Op's adult children have professed faith in Christ, as have most of the grandchildren and now great-grandchildren. That particular event became very formative in my life and in my brother's life. Because while I was intrigued by by the adults in the room and what was happening in their hearts and what kind of help they needed, my brother was intrigued by the detectives at the door. (laughs) Because they knew what was going on out there and they were going to do something about it. And so I became a pastor and he became a police officer. And many, both of us, many, many times in our lives, have come alongside families like this in times like these to offer help and hope in Jesus' name. And 40-some years later, when we had our first grandchild, and my daughter said to me, what do you want her to call you? I said, Pop-Op. Because I want to keep alive that legacy of a happy, healthy, fun-loving, Christ-following man to the third and the fourth and the fifth generation. Now, does all of that mean it was okay for my father, grandfather to be violently robbed of life at the age of 66? Of course not. Does it mean God engineered the whole thing to get us all where we were supposed to be? No, I don't think so. What it does mean is that in a fallen world and an awful moment, God came through for me and for our family. He ushered my grandfather into the life to come 
where we will all be with him for all eternity. He faithfully guided each of us on our faith journey to get through this with our faith intact. And he worked through those tragic events that particular day to shape the faith and calling of two young boys who would serve God and others with the gifts that he had given to us. And so it's never too late for God to come through. And that's as true for you and for your disappointments as it was for Jairus and his family, as it was for me and my family. It could be you are carrying with you today, to this very day, some disappointment from your childhood. Things didn't turn out the way you hoped, the way you prayed. Maybe you're dealing with that kind of disappointment today. I don't want to minimize that in any way. These are difficult things that, that rock our faith and become pivotal moments when we can walk away or we can stay. I want you to hear the words of Jesus that day, the words he spoke to that man, Jairus, in an awful moment. Keep on believing. Keep on believing. Because it's always too soon to give up. And it's never too late for God to come through. Let's pray. I'd like to give you a moment to offer your disappointments to the Lord. Whether it's a disappointment you've been carrying with you for a long, long time or one you're living with right now, invite Jesus into the scene. Believe that he can do something good. Tell him what you're feeling and ask for his help. We're grateful, Lord, that you are a God we can turn to in all the seasons and circumstances of life. More than that, we're grateful you are a God we can trust in all the seasons and circumstances of life. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might give faith and courage and perseverance and hope to every person who's here today, whatever it is they might be carrying in their hearts. And Father, we will trust you to lead us and those we love to good and eternal things as we follow you in Jesus' name.